Solving energy is the most important problem ever. Americans on average get about nine times as much energy as the median human. You guys think about certain problems that there's no way we can solve. Recycling, reusing, reducing. We don't seem to be making much progress that way. You know, you talk about hacking uh, passwords from Wi-Fi systems to solving the world's biggest problems to vaccines, malaria. You've created some wild inventions, you and your team, and you worked on a lot of different things. Probably our most famous invention is a machine that can find mosquitoes and shoot them down with laser beams. If it's so easy to break into softwares to get my password, is there anywhere you trust? Passwords are, you know, I collect them for fun. <laughs> that's that's a scary thought when you say that. I read somewhere you didn't go to college. Did you actually not go to college? Computer hacking isn't something you go to college for. It's, it's, it's what you get kicked out of college for. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the biggest threat we may face in the future? The epidemiology, you know, the spread of disease. Dude, but what do we do if we do get a virus that's contagious, that's deadly? Yeah. How well, do you prevent that? Before we invented vaccination, 400 million people died of smallpox, right? That's more than the entire population of America. We want to be ready. But the argument on the other side is naive for you to say because you're a scientist and you don't even know if this vaccine is going to work and the effects of it. Look what's going on with autistic kids. I'd rather have autism than smallpox. The worst case scenario is you're creating another problem that's as bad or worse. So there are a lot of people that have impressive resumes in the world, but let me read you my guest's resume today. You tell me what you think about this. So number one, he helped build spaceships with uh, Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin, which, you know, just building spaceships, not a big deal, you know. Uh, the world's smallest PCs, he, what he helped build, 3D printers at MakerBot, artificial intelligent agent systems, the HackerBot, and he built a robot that can steal passwords on a Wi-Fi network. He's got over 70 patents. He works with Bill Gates and Nathan Miravold at Intellectual Ventures Lab. My guest today is Pablos Holman. Pablos, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. Yeah, my pleasure. That's exciting. So, so that's, a, that's a pretty ridiculous resume you got there. Well, I actually don't even have a resume. I mean, those are just that's like projects I've worked on, but I, I don't think I'm hireable for any job. <laughs> I don't think you are hireable. I think, the, I think only a couple of guys can hire you, and I think they have you right now that you're working for them. So, I mean, you, you talk about a lot of different things that you talk about. You know, you talk about stuff from uh, hacking uh, passwords from Wi-Fi systems to solving the world's biggest problems to, you know, vaccines, malaria. I mean, there's a bunch of things you're talking about. So, Prior to talking about solving the world's biggest problems, I got a lot of questions for you I want to talk about in that area is, how did you get into the business that you're into right now? I mean, I started out uh, when I was a kid. I grew up in Alaska, and, um, there was, and I got a computer when I was nine years old, and nobody for like a thousand miles in any direction knew any more about computers than me. So I just had to learn everything the hard way through a lot of trial and error, and um, that made me maybe so, I, I don't know, versatile in a sense, because I really learned at a, you know, all the way down to the ones and zeros, how, how a computer works. And then that was so long ago that I just kept up with it, you know, so I only ever have to learn about the new things. Anyone else trying to get into computers has to, has to, has a lot of catch up to do and, and more than they have time for in a lifetime. So that, I think that, uh, that autodidactic learning style, yeah. um, running with curiosity made me made me pretty unique and so my whole career I've just been trying to do new things with computers and, and other technology and uh, that's pretty cool 
Yeah. That's pretty cool. Now, who were you in high school? If I was in 10th grade with you, who was Pablos? I was the prototypical computer nerd. So first, the very before people knew that wasn't cool, um, I was a computer nerd then. <laughs> you were a computer nerd. Now, did you, did you go to high school in Alaska or did you leave yeah. Alaska by then? Yeah, I went to high school in Alaska. And, um, you know, in those days, I was just so excited about computers. People thought they were a joke. Like they didn't know that like the spreadsheet hadn't been invented. People didn't know a computer was going to be a useful thing. And in fact, I had a computer and I had a skateboard and people were usually conflicted about which was a bigger waste of time. Right. So, <laughs> uh, I was lucky revenge of the nerds, uh, computers turned out to be useful and the rest is kind of history. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what part of Alaska, by the way? Uh, mostly Anchorage. I also lived okay. on the Kenai Peninsula for five years. So Got it. Very cool. Okay. So you, so I'm assuming eventually you leave Alaska. It doesn't look like you're in Alaska right now. Yeah, I'm not in Alaska. It didn't, it really wasn't the, the hotbed of technology that I wanted to be in. And so I eventually moved to the Bay area and worked on tech startups and stuff there. That makes now, sense. Now I, I'm in Seattle. I hope the people in Alaska are not offended by that, you know, because there's a couple no. of engineers up there that are going to say, wait a minute, we're trying to be the next Silicon Valley. <laughs> people in Alaska are not easily offended. And that's one of the beautiful things about them. It's one of our favorite places we go to. When I okay. take my family there, my oldest son has got that personality of curiosity. He's the quiet oh, guy yeah. where he's to himself and everybody thinks he's weird a little bit. He loved a lot. When we took him there, so it is what it is. So, Great. so you look, we got we got a lot of uh, uh, problems in the world today. I know you gave a talk on, uh, you have a TEDx talk, I think with, I don't know, twenty five million views or twenty three million views that people want to know this stuff about hacking. And today, you know, you what what the coronavirus did to a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of uh, threats came about that we didn't think about before. You know, we didn't yeah. think about. What if all of a sudden we have to shut down? I mean, I've been in the states since nineteen ninety. And I lived in Iran 10 years prior to that and a couple years in Germany. We're not used to, you cannot go out, you know, social distance, don't go close to people. It's, it's some weird times in the last six months, but it's made us think about a lot of different kinds of threats that we could face in the future. Yeah. From the world you're in, you know, and what you've experienced, what do you think is the biggest threat we may face in the future? I mean, um, at the lab, we did a lot of uh, work on epidemiology which is you know the spread of disease because we're trying to figure out how to eradicate some of these diseases that are that are still plaguing us in the world and you know we built giant computational models for that so for the first time in human history it's been you know possible for us to create these computer simulations of how a disease spreads and that gives us a superpower which is that we can now test interventions in software thousands of times before we do it in the real world. And that helps us to plot optimized eradication campaigns. And that type of technology is unprecedented. You know, we've never been able to do that. But one of the things that allowed us to do was also create simulations of pandemics. And it's the only thing that scares us. Like I don't worry about, you know, artificial intelligence turning us into gray goo or, you know, I don't worry about nuclear war. The pandemics uh, are uniquely advanced because of especially modern air travel, right? So, you know, pandemics in the, in the past, something like coronavirus, the way we're experiencing it now, you know, that's something that might have taken over a 
a city over the course of months, and it would take a couple more months to get to the next you know, country or state over, you know, it would take a while. And so you could sort of get a sense of what was going on. Um, we have people flying from everywhere to everywhere every day. And so, um, you know, that's really changed the dynamics. And in our simulations, we're able to show that, you know, these pandemics go global almost overnight. So we tried to raise the alarm about this five or six years ago. And I'd say we're wildly ineffective. Um, I think at that time, one of the things um, since you know Bill Gates funds all that work, um, at, we have a group called the Institute for Disease Modeling. And so he did a TED talk about pandemics five years ago yep. and showing some of that work and trying to show people how serious this was and how important it would be for us to prepare for that and to try and invest in uh, things like diagnostics, invest in vaccine development, invest in you know preparedness response so that we don't do dumb things when, uh, when there's a pandemic. And I think I looked in like February or March and I think that uh, that TED talk had like five or 6 million views after five years. So no one was listening. I mean, we probably should have got a Kardashian to do it instead of Bill. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of thing humans just really don't want to pay any attention to until, until it's too late. And that's what we're living with. So I'd say a good thing to focus on investing in going forward would be pandemic response. You can't do much better than that. Um, it's probably the single biggest thing that we're unprepared for as humans. If the, for the audience that doesn't know, who hasn't uh, read up much on you or hasn't watched many of your videos, sure. can you talk about some of the projects you've worked on? Like you've, yeah. you've created some, some wild inventions, you and your team, and you worked on a lot of different things. Can you walk us through some of them? Well, probably the most, the most we, we, basically what we did is we built a lab to try and uh, invest in invention and really to you know, find a way to fund inventors and, and take on developing new technologies. Um, that wouldn't get done in, you know, in businesses. And you see a lot of what we call technology today is really just iPhone apps and enterprise software. It's not really tech. So we invent um, uh, at the lab at a large scale. I think most years we were the uh, biggest inventors in America. Um, but we'd start with big problems. And so um, probably our most famous invention is a machine we invented that can find mosquitoes and shoot them down with laser beams as a malaria intervention. And again, you know, we're living with COVID right now, which might take a million lives globally this year. Malaria takes almost a million lives every single year and has for our entire lifetime. Most of them are kids under five years old, you know, uh, coronavirus is impacting us because it, it finally is a disease that managed to catch rich people in America. But the truth is, you know, for most of the sub-equatorial sub countries, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they've been living with a lot of uh, infectious disease, um, you know, for, for our entire life. And, and what it really means is that we figured out how to solve some of those problems in the west we figured out how to solve those problems for rich people and then the job wasn't finished we didn't figure out how to go solve that problem for everyone else and so that's why i um, i fixate on um on uh, on disease eradication because 
it's the kind of thing where we know the kinds of things we could do uh, to make a dent in, in the spread of malaria and some of these other diseases, but, um, but we haven't done a great job of doing it for the whole world. And so I think the, um, you know, the potential in, in our lab was to try to invent technologies that would help us scale up how we could do it. Now, shooting mosquitoes with lasers isn't the solution to malaria. It might be a tiny piece of it, but we also invented diagnostics using artificial intelligence that are, you know, way faster, cheaper, more accessible, more scalable. So that in diagnostics are important because if you can test somebody and figure out that they have the disease, maybe you can treat them before it takes their life <laughs> or before they spread it to other people, you know, that kind of thing. And that's, and that's a lot of what people are just learning about in America for the first time with COVID mm. uh, because you know, we've been lucky if not, not to have to deal with it. But we also invented um, a machine that can suppress hurricanes as a kind of uh, way of ameliorating some of the effects of global warming. We invented a new type of nuclear reactor that's powered by nuclear waste. Uh, that's a modern safe reactor design. And a lot of people don't even know that's possible. Um, and so there's a lot of really cool inventions, intellectual ventures from that. And you know, those are things that take a long time to commercialize, you know, so, you know, when you're inventing your, a lot of times 10 or 20 years before a product. What process do you guys use to solve problems? Like, is there a step, step-by-step -step process, like mm. standard operating procedures, yeah. let's solve a problem. What's the problem? Here's a problem. What steps yeah. do you guys take to go through it? You know, the, I think there's a good Malcolm Gladwell article about our invention process, but essentially what we would do is start with the biggest problems that we could find, okay. right? That's a little different than what other people do. In Silicon Valley, we have this idea called scratch an itch, mm -hmm. which is like, find a problem you have and solve that. That's budget market research. But the truth is in Silicon Valley, you know, we're kind of running out of problems. You know, the biggest problems, you know, entrepreneurs seem to be able to find is having drones deliver weed to their dorm room or something you know we're, we're running out of real problems whereas if you look outside of your world you can find much bigger problems and bigger opportunities to make a difference so um for us it doesn't make sense uh to go after little problems so we would start with big ones and we'd take on things like energy or global warming or or malaria um and then what we do is we get uh, we have a kind of a um stable of maybe 150 prolific inventors uh, from all over the world who, who are, have real inventive minds and a lot of experience. And, and the truth is a lot of them have an expertise. Um, so we'd, sit, we'd get maybe half a dozen or a dozen folks in the room. Um, you know, it could be a laser expert, a chemist, a physicist from the, from the nuclear team. I'm a computer hacker. Collectively, we know the cutting edge in every area in science and technology. And so we're able to find inventions at the borders. And that's really where a lot of the open territory for invention is, is when you can cross pollinate what's happening in machine learning with a new discovery in photonics and start putting those together and come up with solutions. So uh, that works really well. Uh, we think everybody should do it and that it's highly repeatable. But um, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of context where you get to do that. And so 
Um, so that process worked out pretty well for us. We, we file about five or 600 patents a year that way. Um, and it was a way to really come up with a lot of, uh, a lot of inventions that, that could make a difference. So are, are there any problems you guys sit around together and say, listen, these three problems, no one can solve human, human cannot solve. Do you guys think about certain problems that there's no way we can solve? Uh, well, we would, I would typically put problems into two separate piles. Okay. Over here, you got technical problems that technologies might help with. And over here, you've got problems between people or groups of people, and that's out of my jurisdiction. Okay. <laughs> so I can't, I don't have any optimism about being able to solve problems with human decision-making. They, they seem to be unsolvable to me. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's actually, it's important to think that way. Like, you know, a lot of the problems that we have are created by humans. They're created by humans' decisions and by their lifestyles and their, and their patterns and, and, um, and their politics and this kind of stuff. And, and so no technology is gonna solve that. So um, I don't work on those. Okay, so we got technical, we got uh, people group or yeah. groups of people decision-making. Let's just say that's political, yeah. you know, opinions, pro-life, pro-choice, mm -hmm. well, you don't deal with that. But on the technical side, is there anything you look at where you say, I just don't know how we can solve that one problem. Anything on that, like bio-warfare, I don't know if we can control a bio or a cyber attack, or I don't know how we can solve it. You know, so is there anything that for you guys is the impossible? You know, there's there, if you take that pile, you can sort of break it down into uh, problems that require a miracle and problems that do not require a miracle. Got it. So in my lifetime, you know, we've had a, uh, we've needed a miracle in energy storage, okay. right? That's why wind and solar are problematic because, you know, we need a way to store that energy that's efficient. We don't really have that. And we would love it. And people keep coming up with ideas and trying to make batteries better and stuff. Yeah. But, but to really make a difference, we need a miraculous discovery in energy storage. Um, another one has been uh, quantum computing. You know, we fantasized about these amazing quantum computers. People are making a little bit of progress here and there. Um, I think a lot of it's overstated. We're still a long ways from having a quantum computer, from understanding how it would work and what we would do with it. So we need a miracle or two um, in that. Uh, another big one is cold fusion. The way fusion reactors work is they make energy the way the sun makes energy. And there's extraordinary power available that's, that would be clean and cheap and free almost, but we've needed a miraculous breakthrough in cold fusion in order to be able to do that here on earth. Um, and, that's, and that's something that, you know, you can often uh, spot these as, you know, things that are just 20 years from now. <laughs> if somebody says it's just 20 years from now, that means, well, they're hoping to get a breakthrough in the next 20 years, but the breakthroughs like that don't, don't happen on a schedule. Interestingly with fusion, I think we might've just got there. By, mirac by, by miracle or by no miracle required? Actually by, um, by figuring out how to take the technologies we have and, and do it with them. And so I, for the first time in my life, I, so I've been convinced that I think that fusion might be imminent. And that would be amazing for us because solving energy is the most important problem ever. If you solve energy, you kind of solve every other technical problem for free. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Because if you have cheap, clean, abundant energy, Things like recycling could work. Um, 
you know, things like uh, cleaning, you know, we could desalinate water, we could make water, you could solve water. Um, if you had energy, you could solve sanitation, like a lot of things like that, that we're held back by. And if in the, in the way to think about this is the truth is, the reason Americans are rich is because we have access to energy that's reliable and cheap, right? That's really the main difference between America and every other country on earth, right? Americans on average get about nine times as much energy as the median human on earth, right? We, so much more energy is invested in us. And that just means that's why we are rich. And so, you know, we like to think we're rich because we're, you know, smart geniuses. And so that's not it. It's we're just using a lot of energy. And so the goal should be to give everybody on earth as much energy as we give an American. And we're not, we're not getting close to that. We're not getting close burning coal. We're definitely not getting there with wind and solar yet. Um, and so we need to build nuclear reactors and we need some breakthroughs. Can you unpack that when you say yeah. the, the world doesn't get as much energy as we do, yeah. we get nine times more? Unpack what it means if the rest of the world has just as much as energy as we do. Yeah, so right now, if you were, if you're going to add up how much energy you, you use for your life, and this is like, you know, driving your car, washing your clothes, cooking, um, flying around, uh, powering your computers and TVs and stuff, it's like, it's like having about nine toasters running full tilt 24-7 right? You get nine toasters. Every other human, it's not, that's not a, the average earthling, let's say, gets one, right? So that, that, that one is just the basics. That's enough to maybe keep the lights on, maybe cook dinner. That's about it. But all the other stuff we do, I mean, I've got giant TVs around here that are on 24 seven with playstations hooked up to them. I don't even know how many computers I have in my house because I'm into that sort of thing. I've got, I've got, you know, a V8 with a supercharger in my garage. I've got, you know, frequent flyer miles to go around the planet multiple times. Like I'm pretty much the world spent way too much energy on me. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that by contrast, you know, you, if you're living in, in Africa somewhere, especially sub-Saharan Africa, if you're living in India in China and South America, you know, you get one toaster. So what I'm saying is, you know, we have these fantasies right now that we're going to somehow reduce energy consumption. And you look at a lot of the stories we're telling ourselves about, you know, recycling, reusing, reducing, <laughs> uh, and we don't seem to be making much progress that way. Um, and I don't think it's the right goal. You know, we're never gonna get Americans to reduce their energy consumption to one toaster. So the right mission is to figure out how you provide the same amount of energy to everyone else on earth that you provide to Americans. And that's how you solve equality. That's how you solve extreme poverty. That's how you solve these health issues that are plaguing us, right? So it fundamentally is about energy. And so um, I don't see a way to get there uh, with the, with the you know, measures we're taking and with the technologies we have. We need to aggressively invest in developing large scale clean energy. And it's, you know, and my, my, my rule of thumb is basically 10 times what we do now. We gotta make 10 times as much energy as we do right now for the world. 
So, so you're based out of Silicon Valley. Yes. I, yeah, think I live in, in Seattle, Seattle now, actually. Oh, you live in Seattle. Okay. Yeah. So Intellectual Ventures Lab, is that in Silicon Valley yep, or do you have Seattle. a place in Seattle as well? Uh, that's in Seattle. And I, I helped start the lab in 2007. I've been working there ever since until this last year, I left to work on some new projects. Okay. Very cool. So question for you would be California. Okay. Yeah. Every year, California faces wildfires. It happens mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again. Yeah. You would assume all the brains in California, all the Silicon Valley brains would be able to figure out a way to come out with an invention to prevent these fires from happening over and over again. Two-part question for you. One, is the conversation being had behind closed doors? And two, if not, why not? Well, uh, the closed doors you're talking about I mean, I, I presume uh, I wasn't invited, um, but I also think the, um, you know, people, you just gotta look at incentives, like who's incentivized to really work on that problem. And, and the truth is, you know, it, it's a kind of problem that really doesn't, that's the whole reason we have a government is to take on problems that are bigger than people can really do individually or that companies could do. And so, but unfortunately, our, you know, we haven't incentivized our governments to, to take on those problems. So we have a real problem there. And, and again, you're kind of out of my jurisdiction. I don't think it's a, a, I mean, it's not a technical problem in the sense that, you know, we know what to do to prevent those types of fires, right? Um, what but do we do? you have to be proactive about it. But you're saying we know what to do. What, what, yeah. what do we do with those fires? No, we prevent them from happening in the first place by and we by, by doing you know forestry management and the kinds of things that you do to you have to have some fires is the truth like you know the, the these forests were you know sort of evolved to get burned occasionally so you know you got to do it but you could do it in a managed way which is important when you have human lives at stake so i'm making stuff up here but i think really the right answer is you know humans have to look and say okay we chose to live in these danger zones. We tried to make it, make it so there was never a fire. That's obviously not going to work. So we need to manage it and do it proactively. And that just hasn't been happening in California. It's certainly happening in lots of other places where we're doing proper forestry management and things like that. It's interesting what you said there. You said that the proper incentive needs to be in there for somebody to want to work on it. We don't have that right now in place. When you say incentive, do you mean incentives for entrepreneurs and innovators to do it or incentives on the government side? I mean, you know, it would be really great. So for instance, I know inventors who've come up with ways of combating forest fires, you know, rapid response uh, where they can go in and do much better than, than we can right now, you know, deploying water and things to dampen the, the spread of fires. Um, but there's not really a market for that. No one pays for it in advance. They don't want to, <laughs> so no one wants to spend a dime on, on the fire problem until there's a fire. And at that point, it's too late. And so we just go through that cycle every year. That's really the reason you want governments at all is to do the things that the market can't do well, right? So the idea is that the government should say, okay, there's no market dynamic incentivizing us to fix this problem. Um, so we're gonna go, uh, you know, so we're gonna go invest in that, right? That's why you want your government investing in like diagnostics for pandemics. <laughs> you know, that's why you want them investing in things like, you know, forestry management. That's why you want them investing in the, lots of these things. I, I have an invention that 
we worked on at the lab that's the simplest thing we ever invented and it's a way to suppress a hurricane right it costs way less than the damage from a katrina or some other hurricane but no one will ever do it because there's no business model right so and, and so plan a should probably be like move out of new orleans and get away from the coast <laughs> no one's doing that so plan b is probably also like move away from the coast plan c or d should be like well let's try and reduce the the impact that these hurricanes have and the loss of life and the property damage and everything that comes from that zero government interest in that right and there's no way that you could get a make a business out of it because of what's called the free rider problem so free rider means you know uh if one insurance company pays for it all the other ones get it for free right so it's too expensive for the one to do it so that's where you want governments to say okay we're gonna all pitch in and make this happen and that's that's why we give money to the government to do those things but it seems like in a lot of cases they're not doing it so there would be so there would be no incentive for there's not a business model for it because right. if you were to be able to prevent a hurricane, how do yep. you go collect the money? Who does, who pays you the money to be able to yep. go? To what there you go. There so you go. maybe the entrepreneur, what if the entrepreneur had the business model, a guy like yourself who says you can fix it and through government grants of cities and states that are affected by it, yep. Florida, Louisiana, Texas, let's just say Galveston, Louisiana, you know, Florida, that whole area yep. there gets hit every year. How about if they were to fund it with a program like that for an entrepreneur, an innovator like yourself or an inventor like yourself? Yep, that would be great, except that humans are only good at doing things they've seen done before. So a government especially is like a, think of a government as like being a very, very poorly performing human. <laughs> like the slowest, dumbest guy you know. That's a government, and, the, and so, or at least in America. So. You have to presume that they're not going to be able to imagine something new, right? And, and even if it's very simple, and the reason I use like the hurricane sink example is it's the simplest invention ever. All it is is a giant tube you put in the ocean and it brings the surface temperature down so it can't heat up and irradiate energy to fuel hurricanes. So there's not even a computer chip involved. There's nothing fancy is just a tube it's made out of recycled truck tires so all we got to do is make these things and put them in the gulf but but so it's even imagining something that simple is too much for a government to do they're not going to do it until they've seen it i don't i don't know if i bite that though you mean to I hope you're like right it, how, i mean if you're telling me like if it, I me on way, this. how how could you how, is there a way for you to prove that that thing works because if yeah. it, yeah, we already have actually uh, from a physics standpoint, it works. I've done a bunch of both physical models and computational models a decade ago. Like it works. It does the job. The problem is, um, you know, uh, like that's actually a really interesting one because people always say, well, what about the unintended consequences and what side effects? Well, the invention is the simplest thing we've ever come up with. It's an 80 meter diameter tube. It's made Tight. of recycled truck tires and polyethylene trash bag plastic. You put one of those in the ocean and waves crash into the top of it. So you're using wave energy, which is free and available everywhere you sure. have this problem. So the waves push the hot water into the top that creates hydraulic head pumps the water down below where it mixes up with cold water below. So that's the whole invention. Now, 
This thing will bring the surface temperature down on the surface of the ocean by about one or two degrees for about a square kilometer or so, almost a square, yeah, a little over a square kilometer. Well, that's enough to bring your Cat 5 hurricanes down to Cat 4, Cat 3, right? Just that two degree difference in surface temperature. Because the way a hurricane is fueled is by the sun shining on the surface of the ocean and then that heat re-irradiating in the infrared spectrum. That, that fuels hurricanes. So if we just bring down the surface temperature, the hurricanes don't get the fuel they need and they don't get up to speed and they can't cause all that damage. So you might need a, a bunch of these in the Gulf, right, to cover this area because it's huge, but you could most certainly um, ameliorate the problem. Now, I'm not saying this is the best solution. The better solution would be to deploy nuclear reactors, use wind and solar, <laughs> stop trying to, um, you know, heat up the, the, you know, the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. But um, that's going to take a long time. So in the meantime, we're going to have to deal with these hurricanes. Something very similar is going on with the fires, right? So you basically want to, you know, you want to reduce the amount of damage you're doing to the atmosphere that's causing things to heat up and, and become more volatile. That would be great, but that's something that's going to take us 50 and 100 years to put a dent in. So in the meantime, we have to come up with some of these, you know, uh, stopgap measures. But now let me yeah, flip the question was, on you. Yeah. Flip the question on you is, can we create hurricanes? We can, sure. <laughs> you want to you make a hurricane? You want to weaponize <laughs> this thing? No, no, I'm wondering, like, can we make a hurricane? And aim it at California to put the fires out? Yeah, no, but but all I'm asking is like if if somebody wanted to make a hurricane, do we because you know there's you read articles like there's technology to be able to make hurricanes today. Can we make hurricanes? Yeah, we could. Um, you know, there's there's a number of different things you could do. These are fundamentally just physics questions, and it's about whether or not you can manage pressure and heat um, in the context. So, you know, if you wanted to make a hurricane, then what you would do is um, I guess the easiest way would be, you know, put a bunch of coal on barges and stick it out in the Gulf and burn it. And you would, uh, and you would make a hurricane. <laughs> I mean, you know, directing it and steering it might require a little more uh, nuance, but, you know, you could do it. <laughs> it's amazing how to you, to your mind, it's, it's so you wouldn't put that as a miracle required. That wouldn't be a miracle required type of a no. invention. That's easy to do. Yeah, that's easy to do. And actually, there's a lot of things we can do for managing the weather. Um, you know, we have an invention for reversing global warming that's pretty simple. Um, another one has no business model, you know. But, you know, I think to, to get through this period where we've, you know, we've burned a lot of coal and gas, we've really made a, 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 an atmosphere that's not as, as good at insulating us as we would like. And so we're going to have to do something crazy. And it, it means probably build some of these geoengineering concepts. You're saying that the global warming, there's no business model, but you got these countries that are committing to, you know, there's the, the world. You can have all these countries that committed to, I think, a big number, not a small number committed to specifically uh, uh, global warming. You, you think there's still not a way to fund it because the way, yeah, you, the way you explained I mean, it. I, I don't know if those things are effective. Do you? I mean, if, if you go to the, you know, if you go to some United Nations summit and sign a 
sign a memorandum of understanding saying that your country is going to reduce emissions? Do you think that that's what's happening? There's no evidence that that's happening. No one's reducing emissions. Do you buy it when they say that? I mean, I don't pay attention to it, but I, I presume that it's not working because if I look at the numbers for emissions you know, and energy, they're going up. You know, we burn more coal and gas every year. It's not going down. So I don't know. I don't, it, it seems like a, a, like a bad TV show not worth watching to me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just looking at the data. So I love the, as as love I can the way tell, you think. I love the way you oh, look thanks. at problems. <laughs> So, so, okay. So let's go, let's go back to when I ask you, what are some of the biggest problems in the world? You know, that you, you know, uh, uh, what's the biggest one? And you said, uh, 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 uh having to do with viruses, you know, another yeah, virus sure. that could go in, you know, like the coronavirus that we have, the, the challenge with the coronavirus is it doesn't have that high of an R not score that some of the other ones do, but what do we do if we do get a virus that has a very high R not score that's contagious, that's deadly, yeah. How do well, you prevent that? Why do you, how do you go, go up against something like that? Actually, the way you do it is exactly the same. So I'm going to give you another story. So, uh, you know, remember hearing about Ebola? I do. Okay. Ebola made the news, but it didn't hit American shores in a meaningful way, right? The only reason you heard of it is Ebola might get to America and then you'd be scared. Um, but it did, what happened like with the first Ebola outbreak, is it was new, kind of like uh, SARS-CoV-2, the one we're dealing with now. It was new, and um, it took a little while to understand what we were dealing with and contain it. 12,000 lives were lost, right? That's a lot. The second Ebola outbreak, only 12 lives were lost. A three-order of magnitude improvement, right? And, and the reason for that is you know we learned what to do, right? We learned about Ebola and we prepared for the response. And I know about this because our team at the lab helped use that computational modeling I talked about to plot our optimized uh, vaccination campaigns and uh, what are called ring vaccination campaigns. So as soon as you find somebody who's contracted Ebola, you grab them, you isolate them, you treat them, but then you go find everybody who they came in contact with, you vaccinate them, and you, and you um, can stop the spread of the disease before it gets out of hand, right? So that's what happened. So between the first and second Ebola outbreaks, which I think was like less than two years, we had that much. Now we've lost a little ground since then in, in, at times, but we've never had such a big outbreak, right? That's what's possible. So SARS-CoV-3, which, you know, we could get next year or we could get in 10 years. Sure. You know, we want to be ready. The minute we identify another novel coronavirus, we want to be ready. We want to be testing people. We want to say, oh, there's something new. So what happens is we immediately isolate them. We go find everybody who was in contact with them. We isolate them. We keep it from spreading. And then... We take that and we learn as much as we can. We develop a rapid diagnostic, right? We rapidly develop a diagnostic that we can deploy at a larger scale, right? We didn't do that this time either. Then we want to go develop a vaccine. We want, to de we want rapid vaccine development. Now that's a hard one because there's a limit. The, the, slow part of, the slowest part of vaccine development is testing, right? Because you really want to test for, again, unintended consequences. That's what we're living with right now in in SARS-CoV-2, or with COVID, what we call COVID-19, is um, 
is we're in the testing phase with a number of vaccines. And we just have to try it on a bunch of people and see if something we didn't think of goes bad, right? Now we're much better at that type of thing than we've ever been in human history. And with, uh, especially with the COVID vaccine, like we're all sharing data. I mean, it's in some sense, it's been amazing because the, the research and scientific communities are working together in an unprecedented scale. So we're getting a lot of uh, vaccine candidates and we're getting a lot of testing going better than we ever have for other things. But the point is we wanna get better at that process. And we have amazing toolkits now. You know, we're used, doing a lot of this vaccine development in computers in computer simulations, right? We design the vaccines in computers before we make them and test them in the real world. Like there's amazing ability to do that. So we can get better at creating vaccines, but we're always gonna have that lag when we have to test it on humans and make sure that it's fine before we deploy it at a large scale. And then that's the last part of it, which is we need to be able to ramp up production. So what should have happened with with this, uh, with COVID-19 is, you know, we should have gotten better at all of these things over the last decade. We should have been investing in that. As soon as a new novel coronavirus was found, we should have responded the way I just described. And that's hopefully what we're gonna be ready to do next time. So so you, there's three parts I got questions yeah. for you for. Yeah. So let, let's go through a couple of them here. So one, I've heard that the, uh, from uh, the experts, Fauci, Gates, a lot of these guys, it's yeah. 12 to 18 months to, uh, 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 have a vaccine. That's 12 to 18 months is the timeline yeah. they keep hearing from everybody. Some say 24 months, but the I timeline mean, here is 12 to 12, 12 to 18 months. Well, my understanding is, I mean, it's pretty rare. I don't know if anyone's ever done it in 12. Um, but the, the, the reason is, you know, you gotta give, you gotta give somebody some time to just come up with a candidate. So give them six months for that. Let's say, well, we just had that six months. We've got multiple candidates. Well, now we've got to test them. How long do you want to test them for? You know, if I give you the vaccine, do we want to wait and see, you know, in two weeks, if you seem fine, is that enough? Or do we want to give it two months and wait and see if, oh, well, you know, he didn't, you know, we cured him of COVID or kept, you know, he's immune to COVID, but it turns out we've, you know, ramped up his, you know, susceptibility to Alzheimer's. <laughs> well, you know, we don't want that. And it might take, you know, a year to, to, to really monitor this population and see if they've done a good job. I don't know what the testing regimes uh, best in practice, uh, best in um, best in class practices are for that. And so I'm probably the wrong guy to ask specifically about that stuff, but fundamentally there's that, that process and you don't want to like take the testing process out. And so that's, that's why it takes time. So you, we have a bigger problem in America, which is people, going back to what I said earlier about human decision-making, you know, even once we have a vaccine that's tested, a lot of people are, are dubious and don't want to take it. And that's really bad because the way vaccines work, you really need to get to as close as you can to hundred percent vaccination for it to work. Um, and the reason is that a lot of people can't take a vaccine, right? So if you have an immunocompromised body, you're not like other people. We can't give you a vaccine. It could be more risk for you. We haven't tested on a lot of people like you. So we're trying to save you by vaccinating everyone else around you. And so when you see people refuse to take vaccines, you're seeing them, you know, not doom themselves as much as, as the folks around them. And you, you know, that, that scares the hell out of a lot of people when you say hundred yeah. percent vaccination, you got a lot of people that are concerned about that because, yeah. uh, uh, you, you know, 
uh, I want the choice to not take it. There's, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it hasn't been tested for five years. Maybe you have the right testing for two months. Like you said, even you said that the candidates, how much testing you want to do? Two weeks, two months, three months, six months. But yeah. none of it's going to be a 10-year testing, 20-year testing, 30-year testing. So yeah. there's that risk. Well, look, that let, me, let me put this in context. Yeah. You know, um, vaccination is a fairly new technology for humans. Okay. Before we invented vaccination, 400 million people died of smallpox. All right, that's more than the entire population of America, of the United States. So we invented vaccination and that's why you and I exist today, right? We exist because of the miraculous discovery of vaccination. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say proactively that you're unwilling to take a vaccine or trust one that hasn't even, you know, you haven't even looked at yet, right? That's a dalliance for, for very spoiled rich people. I'm just repeating what you said. Now, what you said was, you know, when yeah. you do come up with a candidate, then how long do you want to test it for? Yeah. Two months, two weeks, two years? Right. All I'm saying is the argument yeah. on the other side, like I yeah. vaccinated all my kids, but the argument on the other side is yeah. like, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, 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 naive for you to say because you're a scientist and you can say this to us, but yeah. you don't even know if this vaccine is going to work and the effects of it. Look what's going on with autistic kids that now one in 52, and then you go to that stat, right? That the, the same stats you're giving with smallpox, you know, you're going to get the other stat that's come with autism. So that's why I'm saying there's a lot of people right now that right. are a little bit hesitant about wanting to t take that vaccine. Look, I don't mean to indict people for their fears. Um, I do mean to indict the folks who are spreading fear. Um, I think that that's irresponsible. I think that's fair enough. But, yeah, what I think about it is, um, you know, look, autism might not be, I mean, we, look, there's no link between autism and vaccines yet. That's made up. But even if there were, I'd rather have autism than smallpox. All right. And if you're gonna, and, you know, COVID, we're at the beginning of understanding the extent of this disease. We're getting better at treating it. There's a lot of things that are improving with COVID, but you know, it does seem to be very high risk, especially for elderly and immunocompromised people. So, to the extent that you want to take care of those people, you probably want to um, take the risk on a vaccine that is is has not been tested for years and years and years, um, because you know you're solving at least one problem. Um, the worst case scenario is you're creating another problem that's as bad or worse, but that's quite unlikely. Uh, again, I like the way you think. I like the way you process things. But, you know, for somebody who is always, you know, trying to be reasonable on both sides, I grew up in a weird family. My mother's side, they were all communists. My dad's side, they were imperialists. You see this painting behind me with those two bigs. Two books, the, all these people are debating the Communist Manifesto and Atlas Shrugged. So you can only imagine My who's God, in that room and what they're debating. But, you know, you, you see a little bit of fear on both sides. They yeah. say, well, you know, before vaccine, 400 million kids died from smallpox. That's a form of fear. And then the yeah. other side is, well, vaccine has created an increase in autism. And that's a form of fear. It's just which fear do you want to buy? I like the way you, I mean, you just flat out said, I'd rather have autism than having smallpox. And you made that decision. Our parents may disagree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't deal with that. So, you know, yeah. the challenge then becomes what do people do? Because everybody keeps hearing about this 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. That's pretty intimidating to say 100% to some people that don't want to take it. Yep, right. In my mind, like, if we just stopped working on COVID, I don't even care. 
right? We're losing a, almost a million kids a year to malaria. We're losing kids to tuberculosis. We've got, you know, uh, we literally have, um, we have had outbreaks of, of smallpox. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. So we have bigger problems even than COVID. This is just the one that Americans are fixated on. So, I mean, because it's getting them. So I'm not saying don't solve COVID, but like we know what to do, make good decisions, use the data. We're gonna have to ride this out at this point. We missed our chance to head it off early. We're gonna be living with COVID for a long time. So we need to use our ingenuity and figure out how we're gonna, how we're gonna get through it the best we can. You, you, you know, when I asked you about the uh, biggest problem, you said pandemic, uh, uh, because yeah, for me- this is where it leads. Yeah. yeah, it's pandemic and this is where it leads. But you said something, you said something that was like, you know, I immediately went there. You said, you know, uh, before we had, you know, we had viruses that would come out, yeah. but then it would disappear because we don't yeah, have the modern air travel. Yeah. So then I sit there and I say, okay, we can't control if we allow flights from China to anywhere else where it's, let's just say from Wuhan to anywhere else. Yeah. And once it comes out, U.S. has some of the biggest airports that you can pretty much fly into any country from here if you yeah. wanted to, right? Right. So how much of it is coming up with the vaccine? How much of well, it, what do we well, do vaccine, air travel? Yeah, I mean, a vaccine, ostensibly, at least if you had a vaccine, if you had been vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 now, then um, you would be able to go anywhere and not catch it. That'd be pretty cool, right? Um, but, you know, we're not, we're not really there yet. I mean, with, with, look, you could make, if you have healthy people who don't have any COVID, which could be your family, could be your neighborhood, could be an entire city. You know, you look at now how, you know, some cities, some European cities are doing a pretty good job now, like Berlin, you know, you come to Berlin, you get tested, PCR tested on the way in within 24 hours, they tell you if you have any, any COVID signs. Um, and if you, if they find somebody who's got COVID, then they immediately swarm them, <laughs> treat them, isolate them, go find all the people they had contact with, test them. And so they're pretty, and so you're able to live a pretty normal life in places like Berlin, you know, people are out on the street having a good time. Um, I'm just using that example. I'm sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Like but so to the extent that you can, you know, contain your population, manage your population, and that could be at any scale, even a family, right? Then you can do fine, right? It's just that when you're going to be promiscuous and have, you know, interaction, close interaction with people from, you know, mysterious places, then you could have a problem. So, um, I think that, you know, humans are resilient. They're going to figure out ways of, you know, changing the, our behavior a little bit so that we can, we can get by and, and do a better job. But, you know, it's sad that it got to this point. It's, and I, I certainly hope that we learn from this because it, it is preventable. I, I, I agree. Again, for me, it was the modern air travel. How do you prevent that? I, I, I don't know if that's a you, you prevent modern air travel, then you're preventing business, then you're preventing commerce, then you're preventing connection, then you pre there's a lot of things that's yeah, being no, prevented. No, I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a very difficult one to stomach. I mean, so, I, don't, I don't know that, 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 that we're going to get to that point, but we might be able to reduce the amount of, you know, uh, air, you know, like we, we were getting a little carried away, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, um, I think I went out of the country like one time in my entire childhood. You know, my daughter's been out of the country 
dozens of times probably you know like we we've gotten a little carried away with this That's you know, a good point. travel as a as a human right thing um you know and not for good reasons we were just going somewhere for christmas for vacation you know yeah. so we didn't have to do that so that it, i think you know if you look at covid now it's caused that to be reduced or eliminated so 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 for me when i'm listening to somebody like you that that yeah. you're, you're you're intellectual you're in this world where to you invention like we talk about invention, you, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, look at these inventors. You're like, dude, it's not a big deal. You know, this is what we do. We sit here and we just kind of go through the process. And the way you just kind of broke it down, the guys in Facebook, I saw you give a talk. You're like, oh, you know, you guys think Facebook, Uber, Airbnb is an invention. No, they're not an invention. They're just a business model. They're not an invention. The whole budget <laughs> market research go creative. We're trying to solve real problems, right? What you're talking about. Yeah. So I am just as concerned yeah. about, you know, being able to, like when you said, Pat, we can prevent a hurricane from happening, but there's not a business model for it. Then I asked you a question. I said, can we create a hurricane? You said, yeah, we can create a hurricane. It's not going to be that tough to create a hurricane. So to me, it's like, if the wrong person learns how to create a hurricane, what can <laughs> you do to abuse it, right? So then you go and you say, can we prevent a virus, a SARS, COVID, you know, SARS, you know, you're going through it yourself with Ebola, first one, the second one, first one outbreak was 12,000, second one is 12. Okay. Mm -hmm. But can we make viruses? Yeah. Can, can man make a coronavirus? Yeah. From your experience, just the same way we can cure it, can we also make it? Yeah. There's no question. We totally can't. That, 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 that seems scarier than actually yeah. being able to prevent it, you know? If so, if, uh, I mean, it's, and not only that, it's pretty easy. Like, you know, the tools you need to do it are available. Uh, I mean, you can, you can do it in your kitchen if you, <laughs> you know, if you want. So I don't, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't have any reason to believe that we're at the point now where we're dealing with man-made viruses. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not alluding to that. I'm just asking I'm not a either. question I'm because sure where I'm going to is, yeah, do that. But but the point is, it is possible. And, you know, that's a little scary, because we're not at the point where we have a, as good of an understanding yet of, you know, of these things that we can tune them. But it is po technically possible that on the trajectory we're on, you know, we're learning a lot about uh, genomics, we're learning a lot about, uh, you know, proteomics, how that interacts with, yeah. with your actual, you know, with your body. Um, and we're learning a lot about, uh, about, you know, virology now and these things, how they spread. So if you put all those puzzle pieces together and got good control of them, you could start to weaponize um, a virus. And, and you could even, I mean, I'm not suggesting this, but, you know, you could, I'll let you come up with a target population, but you could find a genetic marker for a population and tune a virus to just go after them, right? We're not wow. there yet. But that that technology is probably imminent um, with the with the track we're on, and it's not something that's going to be, uh, you know, it's not like you know, like nuclear bombs are hard because you got to figure out how to get a hold of a bunch of you know enriched uranium. Like it, that's hard to do. Um, this is not hard to do in that way. And that's why I say pandemics are what scare us. I, I, I agree with the way you put it there. Now, for the rest of us simple folks, we worry about somebody stealing our password. To you, you laugh about it because you know how to do that with your eyes closed, right? With the technology you've created. So 
nowadays, you know, you talk to certain answers. So where do you hide your passwords? I don't want to really say, but I hide my passwords in my notes section on my phone. Oh, shoot. Okay. Where do you hide your passwords? I write it on a piece of paper. Where do you hide your password? I have it on file on my computer. Where do you hide your password? I have it on an Excel spreadsheet, right? And all these places you go through. And so now there's a business model for apps that you put your passwords in and they protect your password. Yeah. If it's so easy to break into softwares to get my password, how can I trust an app to restore all my passwords? Is there anywhere you trust to restore your passwords? So let's imagine um, that I want your password. I'm going to make um, a website for Iranian-American fans of Atlas Shrugged. And I'm going to send you an email with a you know free trial discount code <laughs> um and you click that the first thing it says register here here's your email address put in a password great you're going to put in the one that you wrote on the sticky note on your monitor then i'm going to take that and i'm going to try and log into every every website on the internet and i'm going to find out where you used that password before right and when i get a hold of your email I'm going to click on, I forgot my password on every other website on the internet. I'm going to get it into everything. So it's pretty risky right now. And I would say much lower risk to use a password manager. I use LastPass um, because then you'll have a different password on every website. You won't even know them. They'll be big, big and convoluted and unguessable. And you're only going to have to remember one. And so that's, that's what I recommend for most people because it's a manageable way of, of improving their security. And, and the game is really just to not be the low hanging fruit, right? You, wanna, you want somebody to figure out that it's easier to get into you know, um, you know, somebody else's email than yours or whatever. So that's the game. And in security, we have this maxim, which is you know, if you're being chased by a bear, you don't actually have to be able to run faster than the bear. You just have to be able to run faster than your friends. And that's really what it's about. So I highly recommend use LastPass or one of the, one of the password managers. And if you can get through that and you, and you feel like you got it under control, then I really highly recommend use two-factor authentication, especially for your email and your bank accounts. Um, and I would, caution you if you're going to do that try to use the two-factor authentication app not your phone number your phone number is a terrible second factor because it's pretty easy to take over phone numbers what, what do you mean by that tell, tell uh, me what you mean by really easy if uh like look you i have i don't actually I don't know if i have your number if i have your phone number you're basically trusting that nobody who works for verizon or at&t or t-mobile is gonna take a call for me saying, I wanna port my phone number <laughs> to <laughs> somewhere else, right? So, you know, I, I, wouldn't trust, <laughs> I wouldn't trust your average telecom employee any further than I could throw them. Um, so I, I think, uh, and we have a lot of cases where phone numbers are being hijacked all the time. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on that being secure. So so rather than using phone number, what did you suggest instead of There's phone number? There's an app called an authenticator app. There's one, Google makes one called Google Authenticator. LastPass has one too. And what that does is that works as your second factor. So a factor is Got something it. you know 
something you have or something you are. Your password is something you know. Your iPhone is something you have. And you know your fingerprint or face ID is something you are, right? So you want at least two of those things to be required in order to get into your crown jewels because because um, passwords are, you know, I collect them for fun. <laughs> that's that's a scary thought when you say that <laughs> to the average person that you know to you it may not be a big deal to the rest of us. It, so it's a big deal. Let, let's wrap up with AI. How about let's talk sure. about a little bit with AI before we wrap up here. So you know you got you got two schools of thought. Okay, on one hand you got people that are saying AI is gonna automate everything and these robots are going to replace us and we're not going to have jobs and our jobs are going to be taken away and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I heard you say in a talk that, you know, humans have created somewhere around 3 billion jobs in the last 200 years, right? That's you said, humans have created three, uh, you know, 3 billion jobs last 200 years, but you know, AI is going to take over everybody's job and we're going to be screwed. So where, where are you on the pendulum? I mean, I think there's a, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of philosophical questions here, but but look, you know, what we refer to as AI um, doesn't exist right now. What we have is machine learning. And machine learning is giving us the ability with our computers to do a bunch of cool new things that we didn't think computers could do before. And the way to think about that is, you know, before computers could really only do things that you could describe in a logical progression. You know, if you could give it clear instructions, it could go do those over and over. And that's why sure. computers have gotten really fast at things they do. Um, machine learning gives us the ability to have our computers take on and understand things that we can't, like we can't understand or describe what's going on in all of the web pages on the internet, but with machine learning, our computers can. And so now you're getting a lot of cool machine learning party tricks, which is things like deep fakes and you know, uh, GPT-3, which is extraordinary, is giving us the ability to have computers write, uh, write stories that, are, that sound a lot like stories humans would write, um, but it still doesn't understand you know, a lot of things. So what I think about it is, look, you know, we hold precious these certain things that humans are good at, a uh, hundred years ago, we would have thought, you know, humans were really good at, you know, telling horses what to do, <laughs> right? And a hundred years before that, we would have thought, well, humans are really good at digging holes with their muscles in the ground um, and chopping trees with axes, but we don't do that anymore. Um, you know, we don't even do the farming, like robots do all the farming to feed us. Like you are fed by robots right now. Um, you're basically, a, a pet being babysat by robots that do farming, which is fine. You know, it's freed you up to do a lot of things. And what I think you're, you're seeing is the struggle that people have when they realize, you know, that they were taking some, some self esteem from doing things that we don't actually need you to do. Right. So the goal of, you know, or at least the goal of a lot of people applying technology and making products and businesses and things is to give you some freedom, right? You don't have to mine coal anymore. You don't have to, you know, grow all your food or hunt all your food. You don't have to do all those things to survive. You actually get some free time. And free time is a totally new thing for humans. Humans did not have free time before the industrial revolution. Everybody just had to work to keep us all going, more or less. I'm generalizing a bit. But you and your kids 
have a shit ton of free time. And we didn't squander it. You know, we invented the entertainment industry. That's your books, your music, your video games, news, elections, all these things that we're doing to try and fill our free time, right? Because we don't actually need you to work. Now, what I'm saying now is that, you know, people are going to go through this, you know, sometimes difficult question of, you know, well, you know, I don't need to be at work anymore because computers can do my job. The truth is it usually takes about a generation. Like that's accelerated, but very few people get put out of their career overnight. Like right now, we don't need more lawyers. We made too many lawyers. We, you know, we thought, because that was a growth thing in the 90s. Now we made way too many robots. Computers can do a lot of what lawyers were doing. They can read contracts. They can do a better job of understanding them than humans can. So we're done with lawyers, right? So don't, don't try to make your kid become a lawyer. When I was a kid, everybody wanted their kid to be a lawyer or a doctor. We don't need lawyers and being a doctor is the worst job you can get. So you, what do you want? Be a computer programmer. <laughs> everybody thought that I was wasting my time. Now they want their kids to be programmers. Yeah. So look, here's what it means, I think. There are a lot of things our computers can't do. There are a lot of things our computers can't do well. There are a lot of things even I don't have any idea how we would solve. And you know what? A lot of that is around how you take care of humans. So if a robot takes your job, I think you should rejoice. Go watch a little more Netflix. <laughs> that's what you want to do. Play a little more PlayStation. But if you got a little extra free time at the end of the day, go fucking teach. Right? We complain about overcrowding in schools. We complain that there's 30 students in my kid's class with one teacher. Yeah. You don't even need to be a very good teacher. Just volunteer with a little bit of your free time. Go teach. Help us get that student-teacher ratio down from 30 to 20 or 2, right? How about taking care of elderly people? We can't make enough nurses. If you think your job's going to disappear, become a nurse. You know what? We can't make enough nurses because we can't make enough nurse instructors in colleges, right? The problem is we can't make nurses faster because there aren't enough people to teach them, right? We need nurses to take care of you because you, you don't have any kids that care about you and you're getting old. Like there are a lot of things for humans to do and we're squandering our attention on Netflix when we should be aiming our attention at taking care of humans. So until that gets solved, I don't wanna hear people complaining about robots taking their jobs. We often use examples like truck drivers. In America, there are currently 50,000 open truck driver positions that pay $50,000 a year or more. Mm -hmm. We can't make enough truck drivers. There are no self-driving trucks. Not even a single self-driving truck has been deployed. When it does, it's gonna take us a while to make thousands of them and deploy them. And you know what? Those trucks don't know how to unload. <laughs> they don't know how to, there's all kinds of things they can't do. So there's a job there probably for at least the next decade. Yeah, when it does work, then we'll stop hiring more. But in the meantime, you know, I think people are overreacting about these things. And the point I tried to make in that video you're talking about is, you know, the population growth curve for planet Earth goes like a hockey stick. You know, we didn't have billions and billions of people the way we do now until the last couple hundred years. And most of those people found jobs. 
So I think that we can make a few more. And I think, uh, you know, we need to really look at these things and, and, and make better decisions about what to panic about. Because, you know, because <laughs> uh, there's a lot that can be done. The technologies are not evil. They're not here to destroy your life. They're here to help you. These are tools for humans to use. And they're not inherently good or evil. They're just tools. So if you don't like the way things are going, you should be helping us take these tools and use them to create a better world and fight the guys who are using these tools to take advantage of you. That's, that's the game. So um, yeah, that's why I work on technology because I see it as you know, the, the greatest potential that we have to take on these big problems, to make a big difference and help make it better for humans. You, let, let me tell you, you come across as such a true believer, like you. I do, I do sound like I'm ranting, don't I? <laughs> no, no, no. You, you sound like a true believer. And, and quite frankly, your messaging is very different than what you're hearing from the media because the media is end of the world, you know, yeah. send everybody a couple thousand dollars a month because everyone's <laughs> going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm about to lose my job next week. So a lot of people are scared. So you're, you're saying this is probably not going to take effect for a long time. And even if it does, you believe in the human innovation to create another job. So my follow-up question for you would be, what industries, like when you went to the nurse, I visually went there, right? We don't have enough schools, education, go teach someone 30 to yeah. one instead of 20 to one, let's go to two to one, like meaning two teachers to one student learning right now. You said your daughter was going to school and there was 30 students there. I think that's one of the things yeah. you said in one of your talks. But Going back to it, so what, what industry is going to take the biggest hit and what industry is not going to be the biggest hit? Meaning, even yeah. if AI comes, these industries are not going to go away. What would you say those are? I mean, look, first, I got I to gotta say, I don't mean to disparage anyone or minimize their suffering. People will lose jobs. There will be collateral damage. Some people already are having a hard time. Um, I'm not in any way trying to you know, make things harder by telling them they deserve it or something. What I'm saying is, you know, when you look at these problems, we're looking at them on a scale of like days to weeks. You got to look at them on a scale of like years or decades. And, you know, some of these transitions, you know, the, the, like the reason I use the truck driver example, it's the one that press is always using about, mm -hmm. how, you know, robots, we've seen Tesla's drive themselves. So therefore a quarter million truck drivers must be about to be put out of business. Look, you don't mess with truck drivers. That's where labor unions come from, right? Like they're gonna be fine. I don't know any teenagers who wanna be a truck driver, right? If you do know a teenager looking for something to do, tell them much better to be a truck driver than a lawyer because we need truck drivers. But look, I mean, I think there's, a, there's the easiest way to think about it. Anything that's menial or repetitive Anything you can define in a clear set of repeatable steps, we're going to have computers and robots do that, right? That's what we want to do. We want the robots doing what they're good at so that we free up the humans to do the things the robots can't do. And I'm telling you right now, we don't have good ideas about getting robots to replace grandchildren. We don't have good ideas about getting computers to replace teachers. That's not going very well. So we need humans. I'm trying to recruit humans to do these important things, right? So do that and you could figure out how to, you know, there's lots of different ways that could break down and different jobs it could be. But look, you know, there's a lot of things that we had invested in knowledge workers, right? 
So we have a lot of people who are doing things a lot of times with computers, it's just fundamentally shoving paperwork around. If you have that type of job, yeah, we probably don't need you and we don't want you doing it. So look for something more creative to do. Human creativity, so far in my view, and I, and I argue with a lot of other people commenting about AI on this, human creativity is something special. It is something unique and AI isn't getting there. GPT-3 does not have human creativity. That's a different thing. Now, I'm not saying it can't make something that makes you feel something. I'm not saying it can't do a better job of writing poetry than I can. But what matters about human creativity is human connection, right? I want to feel connected to you. I want to come have lunch with you and talk about that painting behind you and find out about your family. Like, I want to feel connected to a human. And that's what I'm going for. And that's what in some fundamental way humans are going for. And so we have to get to a point where we recognize that even if I had a robot here talking to you, just like I am, and you know, or two robots talking to each other, it doesn't suffice. And maybe I'm saying there's a soul in there somewhere that I can't make with an AI. But that's that's a, 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 a very heartfelt, man, what you just said right there. Uh, by the way, you, I read somewhere you didn't go to college. Did you actually not go to college? Did you not attend college or did you do some college? Com computer hacking isn't something you go to college for. It's, it's, it's what you get kicked out of college for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is hilarious. Well, very cool. Uh, by the way, did you get a chance to work directly with Gates and Bezos or no, you didn't get a chance to work closely uh, directly with oh, them? Oh, yeah. I... Um, so in the, at the, I was at Blue Origin in the beginning and there were like, you know, three of us <laughs> at the very beginning. And, um, and, you know, Jeff loves it. I mean, he really, you know, I mean, again, this is an interesting case where, you know, Jeff believes in the future of humanity. And you can see on a long enough time horizon, humanity doesn't have a future on earth. Like we are going to get absorbed into the sun at some point. Like it might take a while and we may ruin things long before that, but there's definitely no perpetuity to humanity on Earth. Most people don't get to think on very long time horizons like that, but, you know, Jeff did. And so, you know, exploring space, the vision is to eventually have trillions of humans thriving in space. Like, that's crazy for you and even I to imagine, but, you know, that's the vision. So, yeah, I love working with Jeff. He's amazing, he has a great sense of humor, super fun, very smart, all the things you've heard are true. Um, yeah, I really love Jeff. And then, um, and then same with Bill. I, you know, I worked with Bill on invention and uh, invention sessions and things, and we worked on a lot of projects for him at the lab. Really great guy. I mean, I didn't, personally, I never had much appreciation for Microsoft, <laughs> but I love Bill, yeah. And I think but what's, what's right the difference thing. between the two personality-wise? Biggest difference? I mean, I never worked at Microsoft. Oh, between those two guys? Um, you, actually, you know, it's funny. Like, I don't, I, uh, Jeff is much more sociable. Like, Jeff is really accessible and fun to hang out with. Bill is really smart, has a great sense of humor, but um, his life is super prescribed. You know, like, you know, he has an army of people you know, making sure that like the president's day isn't planned as tightly as Bill's. Like he's very, 
his, his every minute of his day is planned. Um, and so you don't get a, a spontaneity vibe out of Bill too much, but you do with Jeff. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, listen, I, I've had a very good time spending time with you, Pablo. Why don't you tell uh, the rest of us here? I know you have a podcast coming out here. So tell us what to, yeah. to expect in your podcast. Jetpack for the mind. You get to listen to me rant about why technology is important. Um, <laughs> and I'm also like digging up a lot of the brains. I mean, my life is really about just finding the smartest people I can and picking their brains. And so I figured with the podcast, I can share some of that, you know, people you might not meet otherwise, and, and you can kind of see my learning process live. So it should be fun. Well, you're very entertaining. I've definitely enjoyed spending time with you. If you want to find out more about his podcast, we're going to put the link below in the thank description you. for you to go follow. Pablos Holman, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Interesting, huh? Hurricanes. Like, can we make hurricanes? We can. Can we make uh, viruses? Uh, yes, we can. But I don't want to say it is. And, you know, technology, schooling, we need to go from 30 to 1 to 20 to 1 to 2 to 1. It's a very interesting thinker. Like, I love talking to people that think in a complete different way. And this was a perfect day. It's reminding me of sitting down with Steve Wozniak 11 years ago when I interviewed him. And, and he was just like, all of a sudden, boom, and then boom, boom. Like, mind is all over the place. But if you can stay with the mind, I took a lot away. I'm curious to know what you took away from it. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, there's another person I spoke to like this. Matter of fact, I, I think you, I, I was going to recommend a different interview, but just in the middle of doing this right here, I think, I think it's better you watch the interview with Steve Wozniak, and you'll see why. That the connection with him and Steve Wozniak, Wozniak interview must have been in 2010. I think it was in 2010. I was 30 years old when I was doing that interview. But if you've never seen that interview, click over here to watch the interview with Steve Wozniak. I think you'll enjoy it. If you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.